we have been doing a series, as you probably know, in the Old Testament book of Genesis. And, uh, well, I thought that it would be good to take a break uh, for, at least today, from that for a moment. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot going on right now in the world and in, here in, in our nation, Canada. So you got those truckers, right? Um, now everyone's wondering what I'm going to say. You got those truckers. <laughs> we got uh, uh, people are protesting. There's, last I heard, there's like, I think probably a couple hundred people have been arrested over the weekend. Um, I just got a, a message yesterday, actually, from uh, a friend in the States. And he said this, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau versus the convoy. Uh, you know, who are you with in this? And uh, I think that's a really natural question to be asking. You know, you might be wondering as I'm talking about this, like, whose side is he on, <laughs> you know? Um, it's, it's a natural question. Who's, whose side are we on? Um, and, you know, a better question that goes with it is, Whose side is God on? I mean, isn't that kind of like the bigger question? Like, we want to be on the right side of God, right? Whose side is God on? So, um, yeah, what's, what's the answer to that? And actually, um, I think there is a biblical answer. Whose side are we on? Um, which side are we on? The answer, I think, is um, No. I think that's the answer, and um, no, and I get that actually from Joshua chapter five. There's this um, there's this little story. So Moses died, and Joshua has to lead this army now, the people of Israel, and they're on their way to Jericho, which is kind of a big deal. And Joshua is there, and then um, suddenly there's someone right next to him, right in front of him. Just kind of appears out of nowhere, this guy, and he has a sword in his hand. His sword is drawn. Joshua sees him, and he asks a very reasonable question. Are you with us, or are you with our adversaries? And the man says, no. Joshua is basically saying, whose side are you on? No says the man, uh, no, but I am the commander of the armies of God. Some translations will have the man say neither. I'm on neither side, which is a fair translation, but the Hebrew is actually a little stronger than that. The Hebrew says no, where it's more of a rebuke, as in it's the wrong question to ask. You're missing something. By even asking that question, you're missing something. You're missing something bigger. The man says, no. And he says, the place you're standing is holy ground. Now, side note, there's good reason to believe that that mysterious man that met Joshua is actually Jesus, God incarnate. But we're going to leave that alone for a moment. The man says, no. Meaning, there's something else that should be occupying your mind. 
There's something else that should be occupying your mind, and what it is is holiness. The place you're standing is holy ground. Whose side are we on? No. The place we're standing is holy ground. Pastor Charlie, that sounds kind of abstract. What are you talking about? What does that actually mean? How does that actually pertain? Well, that's a good question. And that's really the question I want to ask. What does it mean to live holy lives in the midst of a world that's very often divided? What does it mean to be holy, to be set apart? Because, you know, that's what holy means, to be set apart. What does it mean? In the New Testament, Peter's first letter, the book of 1 Peter, it really addresses that very concept. So what we're going to do today is just look at a couple highlights from that that really pertain to this present moment in our lives and in our nation and in our world. So we're going to do that. First, I'm going to pray. Then we're going to dive in. Father God, I pray that you'd help me speak clearly, biblically, helpfully. I pray that your heart would come out, your truth would come out, that our hearts would be receptive to you, and, um, and we would be challenged, we would be changed, um, we would be renewed. Lord, we ask this in your name, Jesus, amen. Okay, First Peter. We're going to do, uh, like I say, just look at a couple highlights, beginning with the very beginning. First Peter, chapter 1, beginning verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in his great mercy. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power into the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay. These five verses are an introduction, but they're really the foundation for everything he's going to say later. He begins by calling us the church. He says, God's elect exiles. This is verse 1. Elect exiles. And this is hugely theologically significant. Um, to, be, uh, to be an exile... When he calls the church exiles, he is connecting the church, us, with a certain time period in uh, the history of Israel. A certain part of the Old Testament story, the time of the exile. He's saying, the church, we are the time of the exile. What's that all about? Well, uh, at a certain point in the history of Israel, and you can read about it in 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and a handful of the prophets are, are speaking during this context and about this context, what happened was God's people, the nation of Israel and nation of Judah, they were taken by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. He conquered them. He took them. He exiled them into Babylon. And for 70 years, that's where they dwelled. They lived in Babylon, but they were true citizens of Jerusalem. Okay? 
So just have that in your mind. That's what happened. They were in a season of waiting. Babylon was not their home. Jerusalem wasn't, was their home. But it was a time of waiting for the people of Israel. Uh, Peter is saying, that's the church. That's us. We are in exile, as in we're waiting. We're waiting for our home. And he also calls us elect. And that, we could have a long conversation about what that means. To be honest, Christians... Uh, have disagreed about what this precisely means, and we're not going to wade into that right now. But what we can all agree on is what it means is we are his and he is ours. Uh, We are set apart. We are his. We belong to him. And on that note, what it says later in these five verses that I read is we have a special inheritance that can never be taken away. It can never be shaken. It's not fading. It will not spoil. It's guarded by God. That's what we read in these first five verses. So we're chosen by him. Elect means we're chosen by him. We are exiles. This is not our home, but we have a home that can never be taken from us. That is the foundation of what we're going to go through, okay? We're set apart. We're special in this way. We belong to him. We belong to him. We are waiting for him. Uh, We are waiting for our home, and our home can never be taken away. Okay, let's keep reading. You get to verse uh, 13. Just jumping ahead a little here. He says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Okay, so here, uh, remember I told you, uh, the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, you're standing on holy ground. As in, your mind is occupied with the wrong things. No, no, no. Instead, consider holiness. And here Peter is saying, just as God is holy, we have this calling to be set apart. To be set apart for holiness. And here, these verses we read, uh, the Apostle Peter, he equates holiness with, in verse 13, um, having our hope set on the grace that is going to be brought to us. Okay? So having our minds set on the right thing is how we live out holy lives. That's how we live it, by setting our mind on the right thing. And there's an intentionality here. And what he says, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope. Like this is something you're going to have to do. Set your hope. Some translations say set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you. So this is, this is what I'm getting at. Holiness will flow out of our lives when our mind is focused on the right thing, specifically when our hope is set on the right thing. Jesus understood this. Uh, That which a man sets his hope on is what is going to define a man and what's going to define his life. Uh, What did Jesus say? If our eyes are good, our whole body will be good. If our eyes are light, our whole body will be light. But if our eyes are darkness, how great is the darkness? And where a man's treasure is, there his heart will be also. This idea that what we set our mind on, what we set our hope on, that is going to define us. So, what he's saying so far in this letter is we have an imperishable 
home. We have an inheritance that's waiting for us. And it's not enough to just have this as some sort of theological truth that we think about every now and then. He's saying, no, you set your minds on this. You set your hope on this, your first hope. This has to be your first hope. And if it is, then holiness will flow out of us. All right? That's kind of what he's saying so far in this letter. So um, let's keep going uh, with that in mind. That's what we've said so far. This is not our home. We are not of Babylon. We are of Jerusalem. We are citizens of heaven. We're waiting for a home that can be never taken away. And our call is to set our hope on that. And in this way, we will be holy. We will be set apart. We'll be different from the rest of the world because we have a hope in something that can never change. Okay. Uh, get to the next passage, uh, next chapter. You're going to jump ahead to verse 11. And he, then he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. All right, there's that word exiles again. It says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. Foreigners and exiles. Once again, he's trying to help us see this is not our home. We are a special people. Set apart. Set apart as in we're not part of this. Um, he says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. What does that mean? How does sinful desires wage war against our souls? Well, the joy that we have, the fullness of joy comes when our hope is set on the promises of God, the inheritance that's waiting for us, the kingdom that is coming. That is where joy will flow when our minds are set on that hope. But what sin does, what sin does, it says, no, don't hope in that. I have something for you to hope in. I have something for you to set your minds on, to set your hearts on. But doing that only leads to to death. It doesn't lead to joy, okay? He's saying there is a hope that we need to keep our minds focused on. So uh, Psalm 137, I was thinking about that in relation to this here. Psalm 137, Old Testament song, Old Testament psalm. It's one of the, uh, it's one of the song, it was one of the psalms from exile. And it starts off saying, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion, when we remembered Jerusalem. Saying, we were taken, we were taken to Babylon, but when we remembered Jerusalem, we wept, as in we longed for it. And then you keep reading the psalm, and he says, if I ever forget you, Jerusalem, if I ever forget you, let my, my, my hand, let my mouth cease to do what it does. Let my hand not work and let my mouth dry up and not work if I forget you, Jerusalem. As in there was this risk. If we're going to be living in Babylon for a season, there's a risk that we're going to forget about Jerusalem and we're going to just make Babylon our home and our hope is going to be here in the world of Babylon rather than in the waiting of the kingdom that's coming. He's saying that's the risk. And beloved, that's the risk for us as well. We live in this world. But what did Jesus say? Though we're in the world, we're not of the world. We're set apart. Our minds have to be set apart in holiness. 
This is very relative to the conversation we're having. While the world has its hopes set on this kingdom or that kingdom, this kind of political kingdom or that kind of political kingdom, and they occupy themselves with it and they wage war in their hearts and in their minds and sometimes in their actions, and they're so focused, so focused, so focused as if their hope rests in that. The world does that, but we don't because we have a hope that transcends, a hope that is above, a hope that can never be shaken. It's very, very relative to the conversation, whose side are we on? We're in the side of Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem, of God, and it transcends all of this. But it's not disconnected from how we live here. And we're going to keep reading, uh, and we're going to see that. All right? But, but first, verse 12, I read this. It says, live such good lives among the pagans, and that, that simply means non-believers in this context, Okay, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. Now there's a little um, questions about what this precisely means, this idea of us living good lives, also translated honorable lives. We live honorable lives, and in this way, um, although people might oppose us, they're going to see that, and and God's going to be glorified when he comes. A lot of people, this is, think this is talking about um, God's judgment in the sense of they're going to see us, they're going to see the hope we have, and in that they're going to see the way of salvation. And when God comes, he's going to be glorified in his judgments because they saw the way of life, yet they did not love it, or they did not refuse it, and I think there's some biblical argument for why it could mean that. Um, but other people say this is talking about salvation, as in people will see our lives, they will see the hope that we have, and they will see the way of salvation, and some of them will take that way. And when Jesus returns, he's going to be glorified in how these people are saved by seeing the life that we lived. Jesus is going to be glorified through us, and I think you can make a really good case that it means that. Either way is biblical, to be honest. But I have to say, there is something very, very noteworthy, very, very compelling. When you grow up without a concept of the hope of God, and you get to know someone who has a hope that is above all of this, that transcends above all of this, someone who can't be put in the side of the right or the side of the left, this person's hope doesn't fit with the liberals. This person's hope doesn't fit with the conservatives. It's more than that. It's beyond that. You catch it. You see it. And beloved, this is what Peter's trying to say, and this is what I want you to see. The world needs to see the hope that we have, the hope that sets us apart, the hope that is above all of this. They need to see that. And how are they going to see it? There's a lot of ways, but once more, what Peter says next is very, very relative to the conversation of what do we do during this time? And how are we supposed to see the things taking place? Verse 13, here we go. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, 
But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Oh, man. Okay, there's, there's a... To be honest, this warrants a long conversation with a lot of, of probably nuance that simply I don't have the time to do. But I think it's good to say some things that believers need to hear. And it's really easy to miss or miss the heart of. Here, Peter says the same thing the Apostle Paul says in Romans 13. Um, the authorities that are in place, whether that's the emperor, the highest authorities in this world, or the, the lower ones, governors and such. It says here, in four, verse 14, it says they've been sent by God. Uh, Romans 13 says, there is no authority on earth that has not been instituted by God. So that is something for our hearts to recognize. These rulers that are in place, God is the one who put them there. Very, very important for us to acknowledge, to recognize. And, um, well, here it says that uh, we're supposed to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to these authorities. Um, and, and in Romans 13, it says anyone who resists what God has put in place, which is these authorities, anyone who resists that uh, will bring judgment upon themselves. So it's kind of a big deal. It's something that we really need to hear. That might be even just worth stating again. Whoever resists what God has put in place will bring judgment upon themselves. That's New Testament truth regarding the authorities that God has put in place. So it's really important that we hear that and don't just blow that off. Are there exceptions? We'll get to it. Yes, there's exceptions. But before we consider what the exceptions to the rule are, let's really consider what this is saying. They've been put in place by God, and we need to recognize that. Now, someone's going to say, well, what about those rulers that aren't good? What about when they're not being fair? Well, let's remember what's being written here. Peter is writing this. His immediate context is the Roman Empire. The people, the authorities, the institution that killed Jesus. Peter knows that they're not always good, that they're not always fair. In fact, Peter was arrested along with his friend James, and King Herod killed James. Peter escaped. Peter knows that they're not always just, okay? Yet nevertheless, he's saying we need to submit to them. Very, very important. By the way, I am not offering commentary right now whether I think, you know, the Canadian government is just or unjust. It's not the point of this. But I'm trying to say, even if you think the authorities in your life are not just, um, I'm tempted to go into a little sub-sermon about children and parents. <laughs> if you think your parents are unjust, you should submit to them nonetheless. Um, but we're not going to go there right now. That's a different sermon for a different time. <laughs> I'm tempted to because I have children, but enough of that. Um, here. Uh, even when they're unjust, and I want to just bring you back. Remember, Peter said 
exiles. He's calling the church exiles. And during the time of the exile, remember what happened, all right? King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, an egomaniac, a wild, wild egomaniac, all right? Read the book of Daniel. You're going to see that. Nebuchadnezzar eventually gets saved, but again, that's another story. He sees uh, the good deeds in Daniel, okay? And God humbles him, and he comes to salvation. But again, that's another story. But King Nebuchadnezzar was not a just ruler. He was an egomaniac, and he was brutal. The Babylonians were brutal. They came, they took the, the, the Israelites into Babylon, okay? And you had all these supposed prophets of Israel who were saying, God is going to break the yoke of Babylon. Cast off the chains of Babylon. Don't submit to them because God is going to do it. And Jeremiah, the hated prophet, he says, those other people who are saying to cast off the chains of Babylon, those other supposed prophets, guess what? The Lord says, I didn't send them. They're speaking on their own behalf. And in fact, what God actually says is, anyone who resists or rebels against King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon will have to deal with me. That is very noteworthy and important, okay? This is an Old Testament truth and a New Testament truth. There are times when God calls his people to submit to unjust authorities, once more, I am not saying anything about the current system, whether it's just or unjust. But what I am saying, it's all over the Bible. Submitting to unjust authority is very often something God calls his people to do, and it's something that sets us apart. Do you remember David? He was treated super unfairly by King Saul. And there was a time when, when David, all he did was cut a little corner off Saul's robe, he had the chance to kill Saul. He didn't. He just cut a little corner off, and then his heart was stricken. He knew what he did was wrong. And so he went to King Saul, and he bowed right before him. He did express his complaint in a super respectful way. In a very respectful way, he told King Saul that what King Saul was doing was not right, and that God was ultimately going to be the judge. But he did this while bowing down and calling him Father and Lord. It was a posture, a huge posture of respect and a posture of recognizing that God's the one who put King Saul in charge, even though King Saul was a tyrant, okay? We're going we're to keep, keep reading and we're going to understand, hopefully, why. Why would God do this? Why on earth would God have his people submit to authorities that are sometimes not just? Why? Um, before we get there, uh, I want you to see verse 16. It says, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. There's a little paradox here, isn't there? Right after he says, right after he says, submit to the authorities, he says, live as people who are free. <clears throat> You see that? Here's the point. The freedom that we have, the freedom that we have, it's not something that governments can ever take away because it wasn't given by governments. The freedom we have is not of this world. The freedom we have is 
based on the hope we have in heaven that is waiting for us, our imperishable inheritance. That's the freedom and that's the joy. And that's why you have people like the Apostle Paul who is in prison, can talk about freedom while being in prison, can sing about the freedom he has while in prison. Beloved, a lot of people are worried right now, feeling like our freedoms are being taken away. And again, I'm not going to offer commentary on whether that feeling is warranted or not. It's not my job. My job is to show you what the Bible says. And what the Bible says is we have a freedom that transcends all of this. A freedom that allows us to lay down our rights. A freedom that allows us to submit to authorities both good and bad. Because we have a hope that can never be taken away. It says, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. This is a lot of what this is about, a posture of giving honor, not just to those in high authority, to all people, giving respect, giving gentleness, giving honor. Okay, okay. Um. <clears throat> I know uh, whenever we talk about things like this, I think the first question that comes to mind is, what about the exceptions? Okay. And, and there are exceptions But again, I I think that before we hear the exceptions, we need to hear the the general principle. Um, The exceptions. uh, um, Some people might say, well, actually, you know what? Let me just read the next passage. Beginning in verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, Submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. All right, first, this thing about slaves, submit to your masters. Uh, This has been used in the past as justification for the institution of slavery. That's not the point here at all. And even in the context, he's talking about sometimes this is very unjust. Um, But people have read that and wondered why is God not setting slaves free? Why is God not ending oppression? Why is he not making that his mandate? And I can tell you that's exactly what he is doing. But he's doing it in a way that is full and lasting. Uh, God's plan to end oppression is from the inside out to change hearts, to teach us truly to love one another. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Um, In the coming kingdom of God, in the new Jerusalem, there will be no oppression. Make no mistake about that. But right now, he's doing something. And for that reason, sometimes he calls us to submit to, to, to authorities that are sometimes unjust. So you might say, well, well there's got to be exceptions to that. I mean, there's that one time that the apostles, you know, said to the Pharisees, we need to listen to God and not to man. Yes, there's the exception, and this is the only exception. If authorities tell us to sin, we quietly and respectfully refuse. 
If authorities tell us to specifically do what is evil, we quietly and respectfully refuse. That is the exception. A lot of times, and, and hear that, that's important, okay? Um, and, and I'm just going to leave that talking about, you know, times that may have happened in history. We just leave that alone. The exception is if we are told to sin, to do what is unjust, we quietly and respectfully refuse. And ideally, we find a, a legal way to refuse if possible. Um, so with that being said, I think what Christians have often felt, though, is if the government is being unfair, then we refuse. And beloved, that's not it, okay? We refuse not if, if, if we think they're being unjust or if we think they're being unfair. We refuse if they're specifically telling us to sin. And in fact, okay, now hear this. This is a part that I know some people won't like, but I just need you to hear it because it's hugely, hugely important when it comes to the witness we bear in this world, okay? Authorities, at times, if authorities call us to do something that is unjust, what are we supposed to do? And this isn't just for authorities. This is people in general. How do we react when we feel we're being treated unfairly? I feel like for the third time I need to say I'm not offering commentary on the government right now. I'm saying, how do we react when we think we're being treated unfairly? This is what I often see, and this is what concerns me. A lot of times, Christians take a posture that essentially says, stand up for your rights, fight for your right, and stand up for your rights. And beloved, that's the opposite of what Jesus did. And that's what the world needs to see. The world needs to see Jesus through us. And that's what Peter's getting at. That's why Peter starts talking about Jesus. In verse 21, he says, To this you were called, as in being treated unfairly and enduring it. Not standing up for your rights, but enduring it and responding to unfair treatment with love and gentleness. This is what we were called because this is what Jesus did. To this you were called, verse 21, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. What, Jesus had the right to take everything. Everything was his by right. He was not treated fairly. And what did he do? Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and he did not open his mouth. He endured it. He took it. He responded with love. And Jesus told us specifically this is the posture we are to take. What did he say? Sermon on the Mount. Do not resist the one who would do you evil. If someone wants to take your shirt, also give them your jacket. If someone wants you to, to, to unjustly walk a mile for them, offer to walk two miles. Don't stand up for your rights. Surrender them. Beloved, there is a time and there is a case where, where, where as Christians we need to plead the case of the oppressed. We need to plead the case of widows but what I'm talking about is a posturing. Fight for your rights. Stand up for your rights. It's not the way of Jesus, beloved. 
And the world needs to see the way of Jesus. And the reason this is so important is because when they see us do this, when they see that we're able to lay down our lives, they're able to see Jesus because why did Jesus do it? Why did Jesus go to the cross and lay down his life? For the joy set before him. Hebrews 12. He had a hope that was above all this. That's what they need to see. We have a hope that is above anything that man can do to us. Um, I need to end this. I'm talking for too long. Um, one more verse from 1 Peter. Chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So once more, remember, the commander said to Joshua, no, whose side are you on? No, no, no. What you're supposed to be doing instead is to understand that God is holy, and that is our calling. And here, Peter says, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Same thing. And connected with that is, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Honoring Christ as Lord is once more we have a hope that is above all this. We don't let our hearts get entangled in civilian matters. We don't get, let our hearts get entangled in, the, in the, the politics of Babylon. We are called to love the people of Babylon, bless the people of Babylon. That's what Jeremiah told the people to do. Go and read it. We're called to be a blessing. This is where we live. But in our hearts, this is not our home. And if we are living in this way where this hope is above all of it, people are going to see that. That's going to set us apart. And at times, we're going to need to confess this. But this is something that he says, and I really, really want you to hear this. This is the mark of the Christian. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the character of God. Gentleness and respect, like we just read. Gentleness and respect. How often are these things the marks of the political discourse that happens in this world? How often is it gentleness and respect? But beloved, for us, it must be gentleness and respect. And in this way, people will see that we have a hope above all this. And in this, people will see the way. They will see God. And in the end, when he returns, he'll be glorified through us. Let's get it right, Westview. Uh, I'm going to pray. Father God, I pray that you would let this truth resonate in our hearts, help us understand, help us see, help us set our hope above all of this and set our hope on you, Lord. And that you would be glorified um, through our lives. And we would be seen to be your special people. Uh, we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.